Section 7 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 7 letters from 1874 and 1877 fort lyon colorado territory may 1874 there is such good news to send you today i can hardly write it fast enough the territorial court has been in session and yesterday that horse thief billy oliver was tried and sentenced to ten years imprisonment in the penitentiary the sheriff and a posse started for Canyon City this morning with him and another prisoner, and I hope that he will not make his escape on the way over. The sheriff told Faye confidentially the route he intended to take, which is not at all the one he is supposed to be going over, and threw out strong hints to the effect that if he wanted to put an end to the man's vicious career, there would be no interference from him, the sheriff, or his posse. He even told Faye of a lonesome spot where it could be accomplished easily and safely. This was a strange thing for a sheriff to do, even in this country of desperados, and shows what a fiend he considers Oliver to be. He said that the man was the leader of a gang of the lowest and boldest type of villains, and that even now it would be safer to have him out of the way. Sheriffs are afraid of these men, and do not like to be obliged to arrest them. The day of the trial, as Faye was about to go to the courtroom, a corporal came to the house and told him that he had just come from Los Animas, where he had heard from a reliable source that many of Oliver's friends were in the town and that it was their intention to kill Faye as he came in the courtroom. He even described the man who was to do the dreadful work and he told Faye that if he went over without an escort, he would certainly be killed. This was simply maddening, and I begged Faye to ask for a guard, but he would not, insisting that there was not the least danger, that even a desperado would not dare shoot an army officer in Los Animas in a public place, for he knew he would be hung the next moment. That was all very well, but it seemed to me that it would be better to guard against the murder itself, rather than think of what would be done to the murderer. I knew that the corporal would never have come to the house if he had not heard much that was alarming. So Faye went over without a guard, but did condescend to wear his revolvers. He says that the first thing he saw as he entered the courtroom were six big, brawny cavalrymen, each one a picked man, selected for bravery and determination. Of course, each trooper was armed with large government revolvers and a belt full of cartridges. He also saw that they were sitting near and where they could watch every move of a man who answered precisely to the corporal's description, and as he passed on up through the crowd he almost touched him. His hair was long and hung down on his shoulders about a face that was villainous, and he was armed to the teeth. There were other tough-looking men seated near this man, each one armed also. Colonel Bissell had heard of the threat to kill Faye, 
and ordered a corporal, the very man who had searched so bravely through the dark house for Oliver at Granada, and five privates to the court, with instructions to shoot at once the first and every man who made the slightest move to harm Fay. Those men knew very well what the soldiers were there for, and I imagine that after one look at their weather-beaten faces, which told of many an Indian campaign, the villains decided that it would be better to keep quiet and let Oliver manage his own affairs. A sergeant and one or two privates were summoned by Oliver to give testimony against Fay, but each one told the same story, and said most emphatically that Fay had not done more than speak to the man in the line of duty, and as any officer would have done. Directly after guard mounting, and as the new guard marches up to the guard house, the old guard is ordered out, also the prisoners, and the prisoners stand in the middle of the line with soldiers at each end, and every man, enlisted man and prisoner, is required to stand up straight and in line. It was at one of these times that Oliver claimed that Fay kicked him when he was officer of the day. Fay and Major Tilford say that the man was slouching, and Fay told him to stand up and take his hands out of his pockets. A small thing to murder an officer for. But I imagine that any sort of discipline to a man of his character was most distasteful. Of course, Fay left the courtroom as soon as his testimony had been given. When the sentence was pronounced, the judge requested all visitors to remain seated until after the prisoner had been removed, which showed that he was a little afraid of trouble and knew the bitter feeling against the horse thief in the town. Several girls and young officers from the post were outside in an ambulance, and they commenced to cheer when told of the sentence. But the judge hurried a messenger out to them with a request that they make no demonstration whatever. He is a fearless and just judge, and it is a wonder that desperados have not killed him long ago. Perhaps now I can have a little rest from the terrible fear that has been ever with me day and night during the whole winter that Oliver would escape from the old jail and carry out his threat of double murder. He had made his escape once, and I feared that he might get out again. But that post and chain must have been very securely fixed down in that cellar. End of letter. Fort Lyon, Colorado Territory, June 1874 by this time you have my letter telling you that the regiment has been ordered to the Department of the Gulf. Since then we have heard that it is to go directly to Holly Springs, Mississippi for the summer, where a large camp is to be established. Just imagine what the suffering will be to go from this dry climate to the humidity of the South, and from cool, thick-walled adobe buildings to hot, glary tents in the midst of summer heat. We will reach Holly Springs about the 4th of July. Faye's allowance for baggage hardly carries more than trunks and a few chests of house linen and silver, so we are taking very few things with us. It is better to give them away than to pay for their transportation such a long distance. Both horses have been sold, and beautiful King has gone. The young man who bought him was a stranger here, and knew absolutely nothing about the horse except what someone in Las Animas had told him. He rode him around the yard only once, and then, jumping down, pulled from his pocket a fat roll of bills, 
counted off the amount for horse, saddle, and bridle, and then, without saying one word, more than a curt good morning, he mounted the horse again and rode out of the yard and away. I saw the whole transaction from a window, saw it as well as hot, blinding tears would permit. Faye thinks the man might have been a fugitive and wanted a fast horse to get him out of the country. We learned not long ago, you know, that King had been an Indian race pony owned by a half-breed named Bent. He sent word from Camp Supply that I was welcome to the horse if I could ride him. The chaplain has bought Powder Face, and I am to keep him as long as we are here. Hal will go with us, for I cannot give up that dog and horses, too. Speaking of Hal reminds me of the awful thing that occurred here a few days ago. I have written often of the pack of beautiful greyhounds owned by the cavalry officers, and of the splendid record of Magic Hal's father as a hunter, and how the dog was loved by Lieutenant Baldwin next to his horse. But unless the dogs were taken on frequent hunts, they would steal off on their own account, and often be away a whole day, perhaps until after dark. The other day they went off this way, and in the afternoon, as Lieutenant Alden was riding along by the river, he came to a scene that made him positively ill. On the ground, close to the water, was the carcass of a calf, which had evidently been filled with poison for wolves, and near it, on the bank, lay Magic, Deacon, Dixie, and other hounds, all dead or dying. Blue has bad teeth and was still gnawing at the meat, and therefore had not been to the water, which causes almost instant death in cases of poisoning by wolf meat. As soon as Lieutenant Alden saw that the other dogs were past doing for, he hurried on to the post with Blue, and with great difficulty saved her life. So Hal and his mother are sole survivors of the greyhounds that have been known at many of the frontier posts as fearless and tireless hunters, and plucky fighters when forced to fight. Greyhounds will rarely seek a fight, a trait that sometimes fools other dogs and brings them to their waterloo. When Lieutenant Alden told me of the death of the dogs, tears came in his eyes as he said, I have shared my bed with old magic many a time. And how those dogs will be missed at the bachelor quarters. When we came here last summer, I was afraid that the old hounds would pounce upon Hal, but instead of that they were most friendly and seemed to know he was one of them. A wanderer returned. End of letter. St. Charles Hotel, New Orleans, Louisiana, September 1877. Life in the Army is certainly full of surprises. At Pass Christian yesterday morning, Faye and I were sitting on the veranda, reading the papers in an indifferent sort of way, when suddenly Faye jumped up and said, The third has been ordered to Montana Territory. At first I could not believe him. It seemed so improbable that troops would be sent to such a cold climate at this season of the year. And besides, most of the regiment is at Pittsburgh just now because of the great coal strike. But there in the Picayune was a little paragraph of half a dozen lines that was to affect our lives for years to come, and which had the immediate power to change our condition of indolent content into one of the greatest activity and excitement. Faye went at once to the telegraph office 
and by wire gave up the remainder of his leave and also asked the regimental adjutant if transportation was being provided for officers families the distance is so great and the indians have been so hostile in montana during the past two years that we thought families possibly would not be permitted to go after luncheon we packed the trunks carefully separating things so there would be no necessity for repacking if i could not go and i can assure you that many an article was folded down damp with hot tears the very uncertainty was so trying in the evening we went around to say good-bye to a few of the friends who have been so cordial and hospitable during the summer early this morning we came from past christian and soon after we got here telegrams came for fay one ordering him to proceed to pittsburgh and report for duty and another saying that officers families may accompany the regiment this was glorious news to me the fear and dread of having to be left behind had made me really ill and what would have become of me if it had actually come to pass i cannot imagine i can go that is all sufficient for the present and we expect to leave for pittsburgh this evening at nine o'clock the late start gave us a long day here with nothing to do after a while when it is not quite so hot outside we are going to take a farewell look at some of our old haunts our friends are all out of the city and jackson barracks is too far away for such a warm day besides there is no one there now that we know it seems quite natural to be in this dear old hotel where all during the past winter our army and navy club cotillions were danced every two weeks and they were such beautiful affairs with two splendid military orchestras to furnish the music one for dancing and one to give choice selections in between the figures we will carry with us to the snow and ice of the rocky mountains many many delightful memories of new orleans where the french element gives a charm to everything the mardi gras parades in which the regiment had each year taken such a prominent part the courtly rex balls the balls of comus the delightful creole balls in grunewald hall the stately and exclusive balls of the washington artillery in their own splendid hall the charming dancing receptions on the ironclad monitor canonicus also the warship plymouth where we were almost afraid to step things were so immaculate and shiny and then our own pretty army feats at jackson barracks regimental headquarters each and all will be remembered ever with the keenest pleasure but the event in the south that has made the deepest impression of all occurred at vicksburg where for three weeks we lived in the same house en famille and intimately with jefferson davis i consider that to have been a really wonderful experience you probably can recall a little of what i wrote you at the time how we were boarding with his niece in her splendid home when he came to visit her i remember so well the day he arrived he knew of course that an army officer was in the house and mrs porterfield had told us of his coming so the meeting was not unexpected still when we went down to dinner that night i was almost shivering from nervousness although the air was excessively warm i was so afraid of something unpleasant coming up for although mrs porterfield and her daughter were women of culture and refinement they were also rebels to the very quick and never failed at any time to remind one that their uncle was 
President Davis. And then as we went in the large dining room, Faye in his very bluest, shiniest uniform looked as if he might be Uncle Sam himself. But there was nothing to fear, nothing whatever. A tall, thin old man came forward with Mrs. Porterfield to meet us, a courtly gentleman of the old Southern school, who apparently had never heard of the Civil War, and who, if he noticed the blue uniform at all, did not take the slightest interest in what it represented. His composure was really disappointing. After greeting me with grave dignity, he turned to Faye and grasped his hand firmly and cordially, the whole expression of his face softening just a little. I have always thought that he was deeply moved by once again seeing the federal blue under such friendly circumstances, and that old memories came surging back, bringing with them the almost forgotten love and respect for the academy, a love that every graduate takes to his grave, whether his life be one of honor or of disgrace. One could very easily have become sentimental, and fancied that he was old West Point, misled and broken in spirit, admitting in dignified silence his defeat and disgrace to young West Point, who, with Uncle Sam's shoulder straps and brass buttons, could be generously oblivious to the misguidance and treason of the other. We wondered many times if Jefferson Davis regretted his life. He certainly could not have been satisfied with it. There was more in that meeting than a stranger would have known of, in the splendid dining-room where we sat, which was forty feet in length and floored with tiles of Italian marble, as was the entire large basement, it was impossible not to notice the unpainted casing of one side of a window, and also the two immense patches of common gray plaster on the beautifully frescoed walls, which covered holes made by a piece of shell that had crashed through the house during the siege of Vicksburg. The shell itself had exploded outside near the servants' quarters. Then again, every warm evening after dinner, during the time he was at the house, Jefferson Davis and Faye would sit out on the grand marble porch and smoke and tell of little incidents that had occurred at West Point when each had been a cadet there, and some of these times they would almost touch what was left of a massive pillar at one end that had been shattered and cracked by pieces of shell from U.S. gunboats, one piece being still embedded in the white marble. For Jefferson Davis knew that Faye's father was an officer in the Navy, and that he had bravely and boldly done his very best toward the undoing of the Confederacy, and by his never-failing polished courtesy to that father's son, even when sitting by pieces of shell and patched-up walls, the President of the Confederacy set an example of dignified self-restraint that many a Southern man and woman, particularly woman, would do well to follow. For in these days of Reconstruction, officers and their families are not always popular, but at Past Christian this summer we have received the most hospitable, thoughtful attention, and never once by word or deed were we reminded that we were Yank Tanks, as was the case at Holly Springs the first year we were there. However, we did some fine reconstruction business for Uncle Sam right there with those pert Mississippi girls, two of whom were in a short time 
so thoroughly reconstructed that they joined his forces for better or for worse the social life during the three years we have been in the south has most of the time been charming but the service for officers has often been most distasteful many times they have been called upon to escort and protect carpet-bag politicians of a very low type of manhood men who could never command one honest vote at their own homes in the north Faye's company has been moved twenty-one times since we came from colorado three years ago and almost every time it was at the request of those unprincipled carpet-baggers these moves did not always disturb us however as during most of the time Faye has been adjutant general of the district of baton rouge and this kept us at baton rouge but during the past winter we have been in new orleans several old creole families whose acquaintance we made in the city last winter have charming old-style southern homes at past christian where we have ever been cordially welcomed it was a common occurrence for me to chaperone their daughters to informal dances at the different cottages along the beach and on moonlight sailing parties on mr payne's beautiful yacht and then during the entire summer from the time we first got there i have been captain of one side of a croquet team mr payne having been captain of the other the croquet part was of course the result of major borden's patient and exacting teaching at baton rouge mentioning baton rouge reminds me of my dear dog that was there almost a year with the hospital steward he is now with the company at mount vernon barracks alabama and Faye has telegraphed the sergeant to see that he is taken to Pittsburgh with the company. We are going out now, first of all to Michel's for some of his delicious biscuit glacé. Our city friends are all away still, so there will be nothing for us to do but wander around, pour passer le temps, until we go to the station. End of letter. Monongahela House, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, September 1877 once again we have our trunks packed for the long trip to montana and this time i think we will go as the special train that is to take us is now at the station and baggage of the regiment is being hurriedly loaded word came this morning that the regiment would start tonight, so it seems that at last general sherman has gained his point for three long weeks we have been kept here in suspense packing and then unpacking one day we were to go the next day we were not to go while the commanding general and the division commander were playing tug of war with us the trip will be long and very expensive and we go from a hot climate to a cold one at a season when the immediate purchase of warm clothing is imperative and with all this unexpected expense we have been forced to pay big hotel bills for weeks just because of a disagreement between two generals that should have been settled in one day money is very precious to the poor army at present too for not one dollar has been paid to officers or enlisted men for over three months how officers with large families can possibly manage this move i do not see sell their pay accounts i expect and then be court-martialed for having done so Congress failed to pass the Army Appropriation Bill before it adjourned, 
consequently no money can be paid to the army until the next session yet the army is expected to go along just the same promptly pay uncle sam himself all commissary and quartermaster bills at the end of each month and without one little grumble do his bidding no matter what the extra expense may be i wonder what the wise men of congress who were too weary to take up the bill before going to their comfortable homes i wonder what they would do if the army as a body would say we are tired uncle dear and are going home for the summer to rest you will have to get along without us and manage the indians and strikers the best way you can this would be about as sensible as forcing the army to be paupers for months and then ordering regiments from east to west and south to north of course many families will be compelled to remain back that might otherwise have gone we are taking out a young colored man we brought up with us from holly springs he has been at the arsenal since we have been here and hal has been with him it is over one year since the dog saw me and i am almost afraid he will not know me tonight at the station before we left past christian faye telegraphed the sergeant to bring hal with the company and purchase necessary food for him on the way up so when the company got here bills were presented by several of the men who claimed to have bought meat for the dog the sum total of which was nine dollars for the two days we were so pleased to know that hal had been so well cared for but the soldiers were welcome to the money and more with it for we were so glad to have the dog with us again safe and well we have quite a ray family now faye and i a darky a greyhound and one small gray squirrel it will be a hard trip for billy but I have made for him a little ribbon collar and sewed securely to it a long tape which makes a fine picket rope that can be tied to various things in various places, and in this way he can be picketed and yet receive exercise and air. We are to go almost straight north from the railroad for a distance of over 400 miles, and of course this will take several weeks under the most favorable conditions but you must not mind our going so far away. It will be no further than the Indian Territory, and the climate of Montana must be very much better than it was at Camp Supply, and the houses must certainly be more comfortable, as the winters are so long and severe. I shall be so glad to have a home of my own again, and have a horse to ride also. Faye has just come from the station and says that almost everything has been loaded, and that we are really to start tonight at eight o'clock. This is cheering news, for I think that everyone is anxious to get to Montana, except the poor officers who cannot afford to take their families with them. End of letter. Corrine, Utah Territory, September 1877. We were almost one week coming out, but finally got here yesterday morning. Our train was a special, and having no schedule, we were often sidetracked for hours at a time to make way for the regular trains. As soon as possible after we arrived, the tents were unpacked and put up, and it was amazing to see how soon there was order out of chaos. This morning the camp looks like a little white city 
streets and all. There is great activity everywhere, as preparations have already commenced for the march north. Our camp mess has been started, and we will be very comfortable, I think, with a good soldier cook and cagey to take care of the tents. I am making covers for the bed, trunk, and folding table of dark blue creton with white figures, which carries out the color scheme of the folding chairs, and will give a little air of cheeriness to the tent, and of the same material I am making pockets that can be pinned on the side walls of the tent, in which various things can be tucked at night. These covers and big pockets will be folded and put in the roll of bedding every morning. There are not enough ambulances to go around, so I had my choice between being crowded in with other people or going in a big army wagon by myself, and having had one experience in crowding, I chose the wagon without hesitation. Faye is having the rear half padded with straw and canvas on the sides and bottom, and the high top will be of canvas drawn over bows in true emigrant fashion. Our tent will be folded to form a seat and placed in the back, upon which I can sit and look out through the round opening and gossip with the mules that will be attached to the wagon back of me. In the front half will be packed all of our camp furniture and things, the knock-down bed, mess chest, two little stoves, one for cooking, the bedding, which will be tightly rolled in canvas and strapped, and so on. Cagey will sit by the driver. There is not one spring in the wagon, but even without, I will be more comfortable than with Mrs. Hayden and three small children. They can have the ambulance to themselves, perhaps, and will have all the room. I thought of Billy, too. He can be picketed all the time in the wagon, but imagine the little fellow's misery in an ambulance with three restless children for six or eight hours each day. Hal is with us. In fact, I can hardly get away from the poor dog. He is so afraid of being separated from me again. When we got to the station at Pittsburgh, he was there with Cagey, and it took only one quick glance to see that he was a heart-broken, spirit-broken dog. Not one spark was left of the fire that made the old Hal try to pull me through an immense plate-glass mirror in a hotel at Jackson, Mississippi, to fight his own reflection. The time the strange man offered $150 for him. And certainly he was not the hound that whipped the big bulldog at Monroe, Louisiana, two years ago. He did not see me as I came up back of him, and as he had not even heard my voice for over one year, I was almost childishly afraid to speak to him. But I finally said, Hal, you have not forgotten your old friend? He turned instantly, but as I put my hand upon his head, there was no joyous bound or lifting of the ears and tail, just a look of recognition then a raising up full length of the slender body on his back legs and putting a forefoot on each of my shoulders as far over as he could reach, he gripped me tight, fairly digging his toenails into me, and with his head pressed close to my neck he held on and on, giving little low whines that were more like human sobs than the cry of a dog. Of course I had my arms around him, and, of course, I cried, too. It was so pitifully distressing, 
for it told how keenly the poor dumb beast had suffered during the year he had been away from us. People stared, and soon there was a crowd about us with an abundance of curiosity. Cagey explained the situation, and from then on to train time, Hal was petted and petted and given dainties from lunch baskets. He was in the car next to ours coming out, and we saw him often. Many times there were long runs across the plains, when the only thing to be seen, far or near, would be the huge tanks containing water for the engines. At one of these places, while we were getting water, Cagey happened to be asleep, and a recruit, thinking that Hal was ill-treated by being kept tied all the time, unfastened the chain from his collar and led him from the car. The first thing the dog saw was another dog, and, alas, a greyhound belonging to Ryan, an old soldier. The next thing he saw was the dear, old, beautiful plains for which he had pined so long and wearily. The two dogs had never seen each other before, but hounds are clannish and never fail to recognize their own kind. So, with one or two jumps by way of introduction, the two were off and out of sight before anyone on the cars noticed what they were doing. I was sitting by the window in our car and saw the dogs go over the rolling hill and saw also that a dozen or more soldiers were running after them. I told Faye what had happened and he started out and over the hill on a hard run. Time passed and we in the cars watched, but neither men nor dogs came back. Finally a long whistle was blown from the engine, and in a short time the train began to move very slowly. The officers and men came running back, but the dogs were not with them. My heart was almost broken. To leave my beautiful dog on the plains to starve to death was maddening. I wanted to be alone, so to the dressing room I went and, with face buried in a portiere, was sobbing my very breath away, when Mrs. Pierce, wife of Major Pierce, came in and said, so sweetly and sympathetically, Don't cry, dear. Hal is following the car, and the conductor is going to stop the train. Giving her a hasty embrace, I ran back to the end of the last car, and, sure enough, there was Hal, the old Hal, bounding along with tail high up, and eyes sparkling, showing that the blood of his ancestors was still in his veins. The conductor did not stop the train, simply because the soldiers did not give him an opportunity. They turned the brakes and then held them, and if a train man had interfered there would have been a fight right then and there. As soon as the train was stopped, Faye and Ryan were the first to go for the dogs, but by that time the hounds thought the whole affair great fun and objected to being caught. At least Ryan's dog objected. The porter in our car caught Hal, but Ryan told him to let the dog go, that he would bring the two back together. This was shrewd in Ryan, for he reasoned that Major Carlton might wait for an officer's dog, but never for one that belonged to only an enlisted man but really it was the other way. The enlisted men held the brakes. The dogs ran back almost a mile to the water tank, and the conductor backed the train down after them, and not until both 
dogs were caught and on board could steam budget ahead the major was in temporary command of the regiment at that time he is a very pompous man and always in fear that proper respect will not be shown his rank and when we were being backed down he went through our car and said in a loud voice i am very sorry mrs ray that you should lose your fine greyhound but this train cannot be detained any longer it must move on i said nothing for i saw the two big men in blue at the break in front and knew major carleton would never order them away much as he might bluster and try to impress us with his importance for he is really a tender-hearted man poor fay was utterly exhausted from running so long and for some time ryan was in a critical condition it seems that he buried his wife quite recently and has left his only child in new orleans in a convent and the greyhound a pet of both wife and little girl is all he has left to comfort him every one is so glad that he got the dog hal was not unchained again i assure you until we got here but poor cagey almost killed himself at every stopping place running up and down with the dog to give him a little exercise it is really delightful to be in a tent once more and i am anticipating much pleasure in camping through a strange country a large wagon train of commissary stores will be with us so we can easily add to our supplies now and then it is amazing to see the really jolly mood everyone seems to be in the officers are singing and whistling and we can often hear from the distance the boisterous laughter of the men and the wives there is an expression of happy content on the face of each one we know if the world does not that the part we are to take on this march is most important we will see that the tents are made comfortable and cheerful at every camp that the little dinner after the weary march the early breakfast and the cold luncheon are each and all as dainty as camp cooking will permit yes we are sometimes called camp followers but we do not mind it probably originated with some envious old bachelor officer we know all about the comfort and cheer that goes with us and then we have not been left behind end of letter end of section seven